Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal developments that matter to you. I'm Joanne Bone and I lead on data protection matters here at Owen Mitchell. I'll be your host today as we discuss recent cases relating to claims brought under data protection and privacy laws and what their practical impact will be on your business. Today I'm joined by Emma Yates. Emma is a litigation senior associate specialising in intellectual property and reputation management law and also Tom Barnard. Tom is a commercial litigator with experience in contentious data protection issues, including claims for data breach. Tom has helped a number of Owen Mitchell clients to defend claims that have been threatened or expected to be pursued on a class action basis. Welcome everyone. I think it's fair to say that data protection is a fast moving area of law at the best of times, but recently there have been a number of cases decided which have had an important impact on businesses. Today, we're going to have a look at what damages individuals can recover for breaches of data protection laws, whether class actions can be brought against you for breaches of data protection law, what additional claims you might be faced with relating to privacy and confidentiality. I think it's fair to say we've seen an increase recently of claims brought by individuals relating to fairly trivial breaches of UK GDPR. Things such as being late in responding to rights to be forgotten requests, incorrect information in a privacy notice, or even a cookie banner not being quite right. The claims are generally quite small, maybe £1,500, but some are bigger and can also include quite a chunky cost element as well. We recently had one with a claim for £8,000 in costs alone. So they can be quite difficult to deal with, and it's not just the money aspect of it, it's also the internal cost and legal fees. Tom, as a litigator, can I bring you in here to comment on that? Yeah, hi Joanne. Hi everyone. That that's exactly the point. Lots of these claims. There are you know, there are obviously the the high profile claims and, and and claims where damages are can be fairly significant. But by and large, what's happened as a result of GDPR is that we're seeing loads and loads of trivial, low value claims being brought against our client base. And as as you say, Joanne, the, the claims themselves are low value, but they take up a lot of management time to to deal with. They're tricky to deal with. Claimants are obviously often aggrieved by what's happened and there, there is a sense that they need to, to right a wrong and and dealing with these claims can be can be difficult for clients. Yeah and I, I think as you say it, it can involve a lot of time spent in dealing with them because one thing with litigation particularly if people have issued is you can't just ignore it. I think also exactly yeah and I think I think the issue has been compounded by the fact that um, there was quite a lot of um, chatter out there about the court judgment in Lloyd and Google which is one of the cases we're going to have a look today. And so I think there was a nervousness that it could um, extend the scope for damages in data protection matters. So I also think it was pushing people to take quite a cautious approach with these things and maybe settling things that they might otherwise have potentially been more robust about. So I think it's been a bit of a perfect storm recently in relation to these sort of claims. So it's, it's quite good that there have been a number of cases in actual fact, which we'll have a look at today, which have clarified what the position is and what the impact on businesses is likely to be. So I'm going to start by having a look at the case I've just talked about, which is the um, Lloyd and Google case. It's quite an important case and I'm going to have a look at the damages aspect of it and then Tom is going to have a look at a class action part of it. One point to note in relation to Lloyd and Google is that it's a case that was brought under the old Data Protection Act. So it was under the 1998 Data Protection Act, not under GDPR, and that's something that's probably worth bearing in mind 
as we consider things and what the impact of it is. So what happened? It's a claim that was brought by Richard Lloyd, who was an ex-director of which the consumer organisation against Google. And it relates to what became known as the Safari workaround. Google essentially dropped advertising cookies on the iPhones by working around the restrictions relating to third party cookies. Mr Lloyd was very unhappy about this and brought a damages claim on his behalf, but also on behalf of four million iPhone users. It was an opt out class action that he was trying to bring, not an opt in one which is relevant and again, be something that Tom will have a look at. From the damages point of view, which is what I'm going to have a look at, the problem Mr Lloyd faced was that he hadn't suffered financial loss or distress as a result of the workaround. He was obviously peeved by it and concerned about the access to his personal data, but there hadn't been any actual damage. So what he did was argue that if there was a non-trivial breach of data protection law, it gave rise to a right to compensation for the loss of control of his personal data. And interestingly, the argument about loss of control giving rise to compensation is something that came from case law relating to the misuse of private information. Again, there's been a recent case on that, and then we're going to talk about that later. So obviously there's an awful lot of things that are intertwined in this area. There was a lot of concern that if compensation was available for loss of control of your personal data, that it would essentially open the floodgates to a lot of claims because it wasn't a very high bar that people were going to have to meet in order to be claiming monetary um, compensation. So the court had a look at whether or not he could claim compensation without there being financial loss and without there being distress. The decision was that loss of control of personal data of itself does not give rise to damages. There has to be something else with it. They took a very traditional approach in actual fact and said that what you need to show is a breach of the data protection law followed by damage that you have suffered, which then gives rise to compensation. So essentially there are three parts to it. And this is a, more, a very traditional approach to damages claims. It's a positive approach for organisations facing these claims because it gives some clarity on the basis that there has to be some element of damage that's suffered by an individual for there to be any monetary payout. So I think it has been very helpful in terms of one, closing the floodgates argument and also giving organisations faced with a lot of these claims some clarity around whether or not they're ones that are likely to result in a damages claim for them. I think the other thing that needs to be factored into this, which has also helped in terms of fairly low level or trivial breaches of data protection law and whether or not damages are available, is a case that actually was um, decided um, just about a week before the Lloyd and Google case. And that's also very helpful. That's the Veal Wasborough Vizards um, case. And Veal Wasborough Vizards are a firm of solicitors and they were representing an independent school. The law firm sent an email chasing payment of school fees to a family, but unfortunately there was a mistake in the email address and it went to the wrong person. The recipient very quickly went back and said that it, they didn't think it was meant for them and that they hadn't used the information. Now, when the family found out about this, they brought a damages claim under Article 82 of GDPR and also 
tried to bring claims for other things such as breach of confidentiality. Again, something that Emma's going to have a look at in a minute. The court thought about the position and made the decision that there was no distress in this particular case other than trivial distress and made a comment that, and, and this is a quote from the decision, that no person of ordinary fortitude would reasonably suffer the distress claimed in these circumstances in the 21st century. And the view is that in today's sort of daily life, you have to expect that there will be an element of mistakes made in sending emails and things of that nature. And if it's a trivial breach and it doesn't lead to damage and it's quickly remedied, then it's not something that you should be able to recover damages for. So it is very helpful from that point of view in terms of the reasonable fortitude test, as it's become known, in terms of whether people are making um, a claim for something that in actual fact is just one of those things in daily life. I think the takeaway message from a damages point of view of both Lloyd and Google and the Veal Wars Revisards case is that you can be more robust in dealing with claims relating to trivial breaches of data protection laws. Obviously, um, if it's a much larger breach or it has resulted in actual substantive damage to someone, that's a different kettle of fish. But certainly in relation to the sorts of claims we're talking about, I think both cases have been very helpful in terms of helping you work out what the best way to deal with them will be. Thanks, Joanne. That's that's really interesting. And I, I agree with you that, that these two decisions really have helped defendants in particular deal with deal with those claims um, that, that they would typically receive on a on a fairly frequent basis. If we go back to the Lloyd and Google decision, you mentioned this actually, but that was a that was a, a claim under the DPA ninety-eight under the Data Protection Act nineteen ninety-eight. Do you think the decision would have been different had it been decided on the on the new law, which is the General Data Protection Regulation and the, the, the New Data Protection Act? I think it's an interesting question. And as you can imagine with lawyers, there are two schools of thought in this area. One is that essentially GDPR has got Article 82, which deals with damages. And that says that you can recover compensation if you have suffered either material or non-material damage as a result of a breach of GDPR. So one school of thought is that that actually means that things like loss of control of your data actually is compensatable under GDPR and that it does open up the sort of damage that you can get compensation for. The other school of thought is that essentially Article 82 doesn't change the analysis that the Supreme Court brought to it and that essentially the decision would be the same in terms of if there was no substantive damage in terms of, um, say, distress or financial loss or something of that nature, then still the decision would be the same. I think probably what I would say is that it won't surprise me if someone decides to try it under GDPR to see if the decision is different um, because of the Article 2 wording in relation to material and non-material damage. I think it's just a matter of uh, watch this space probably in relation to that. So, Tom, in addition to the legal implications for claiming damages in data breach claim cases. Lloyd and Google also had um, quite a substantial procedural impact. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, uh, that's right, Joanne. This was largely a procedural question, actually, that, that had meant the court had to deal with the issue of damages for data breaches as well. So the, the Google decision has had an impact on the ability of claimants to bring group claims. Now, as a result of US courtroom dramas that we, that we all like watching, 
there is a tendency to think that in English law you can bring class actions. Um, but that isn't actually the case. Although class actions do exist in similar jurisdictions, so in the States, Canada and Australia, for example, they don't exist in England um, for many types of claims at all. Um, they're heav heavily restricted, although they, they do exist for, for certain claims, but not for data breach claims. So what Mr Lloyd attempted to do was to use what's called the representative procedure to bring a claim on behalf of the, the millions of iPhone users that had been affected by the, the Safari workaround. And the Court of Appeal actually described this as an unusual and innovative use of the representative procedure, even though the procedure is, is well established in, in English law. Now, the, the representative procedure itself can be used to bring claims on behalf of a group of claimants or defendants, but only where that group all have the same interest in, in the claim. So from a procedural perspective, then, the issue in Lloyd and Google was whether all affected iPhone users had the same interest as Mr. Lloyd in bringing the claim against Google. So to answer that question, the key issue for the Supreme Court, as I said, was, was whether it was necessary to individually assess each claimant's entitlement to damages. If it was necessary for an individual assessment of damages in each case, then the representative procedure couldn't be used because not every claimant had the same interest in the claim and each claimant would have to prove their loss separately. So their interest in that scenario would actually be different. And ultimately, what the Supreme Court decided, as, as you've already alluded to, Joanne, is that for a breach of the, the DPA 98, damages do have to be individually assessed. And that's because the loss of, loss of control of data by itself isn't sufficient. You actually need to, to demonstrate the harm that you, you suffered. So each and every claimant would have to, to, to show that they've, they've suffered the, the harm that gives rise to an entitlement to, to damages or compensation. And in giving judgment, Lord Legat said that Mr Lloyd's claim was doomed to fail because each claimant would have to show that Google made some unlawful use of the specific information obtained and that the individual suffered some damage as a result. So the decision in Lloyd and Google makes it very difficult, probably not impossible to use, well, in fact, not impossible to use the representative procedure in claims where each claimant has to demonstrate the specific damage that they've suffered. Do you think there'll be a way around this? So you you asked me about the impact of GDPR, but so if GDPR allows claims for non-material damage, do you think that might change the decision in relation to the class action side of things? Yeah, I think I think it will. There, there are likely to be ways around this, and and Lloyd and Google certainly isn't the end of claims for compensation arising from from breaches of data protection legislation. Um, far far from it. Uh, the court even said as much, actually, and that Mr. Lloyd may have claimed himself for the matters that he's been complaining about, the, the safari workaround, although there are other issues that, that he would face in now bringing those claims after such a long period of time. But the real issue is whether the representative procedure can be used to bring such claims on a quasi-class action basis or, or on an opt-out basis, where, uh, where claimants don't have an opportunity to, well, if they don't want to be included in the claim, they have to actively decide not to be part of the group. Now, the court was generally encouraging of the use of the representative procedure in Lloyd and Google, albeit didn't allow it because of the damages point. But the court didn't have any objection to claimants bringing claims or on a two-stage process, which is typically the way that the representative procedure is actually used. For the first stage, instead of claiming damages, the first stage would be for, for the claimant to actually seek a declaration of liability and that compensation compensation should be awarded in principle. And then the second stage would be actually to have a hearing to make an individual assessment 
of damage and compensation on an individual basis. And that's one option that class action or claimant action groups may now look at, uh, because that is a, is a workaround. It's by no means, or it's, it's nowhere near as efficient as using the representative procedure in the way that, that Mr. Lloyd was hoping to do. It is an option. And then the other point that you mentioned, Joanne, is, is that this was decided under the old law. Um, and of particular interest is, is whether or not, had this been decided under the GDPR, whether or not the representative procedure could have been used. Now, I think the, the answer there depends on whether Article 2 does give a right to damages, uh, where, where there's been non-material harm without actually having to show that harm has been suffered on an individual case. And I think if claimants can can show that they have suffered the same harm because of a because of a particular incident and that there's no need to prove anything further, then they may well be able to use the representative procedure for, for those claims. Just finally on that point, I think a further implication of, of Lloyd and Google is that Parliament might now decide to legislate uh, that, that class actions can be used or should be allowed in, in English litigation. The, as I say, the court were encouraging of, of the use of rep, the representative procedure where it's appropriate. It wasn't appropriate in, in Lloyd and Google. But given that data protection issues like this are, are fairly frequent, what I think we might see is the, the, the class action debate being revived. It's, it's rumbled on for a decade or more, but I think that's going to be uh, something that, that, that comes back into to legal circles. I think that would be interesting, not least because the government is looking at data protection reform and has been a consultation paper out by DCMS. So it'll be interesting to see where they go with it. Although, interestingly, that consultation paper is that they're pointing more to a business friendly interpretation of data protection. So it will be, it'd be interesting to see what they do there. The other thing I was going to ask you about is, obviously, I mentioned that there was another case in relation to damages. Have there been any other decisions recently that look at the impact on people, the ability to bring data protection claims? Um, anything that you can add to uh, the Lloyd and Google discussion around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there have been, Joanne, and, and, and some that our clients have found really useful, actually, where they're on the defendant side of, of claims, which is typically what, what we, we deal with, as you know. There was one decision, Warren and, and, and DSG retail, and the, the implication of the DSG decision is that where there's been an accidental data breach, claimants will only be able to bring claims under the data protection legislation and not the misuse of private information, breach of confidence and, and negligence. Now, in most data protection uh, breach claims that we see, misuse of private information, breach of confidence and negligence claims are always pleaded or claimed alongside the data breach point. And that's technically because the misuse of private information and breach of confidence and the like, they're, they're privacy claims, they're, they're categorized as privacy claims, which means that it's possible to recover the cost of any after the event insurance policy that a claimant might take out to protect them from adverse costs in litigation. In privacy claims, you can also claim, you can also recover from the other side success fees. And again, where claims are pursued on low value claims are pursued on what we might call a class action basis. The ATE position and the success fee position is, is really important. So in, in BSG, the court decided that without any sort of positive action on the part of the defendant, so where the defendant has actually itself been a victim of a cybersecurity incident, for example, it's not going to be appropriate to bring claims in mis misuse of private information 
and the breach of confidence. So they are restricted back down to the data protection breaches, which means that success fees and APE premiums can't be recovered. And I think the, the practical implication of that is that it's, it's going to limit the number of claims uh, or the number of incidents in which it is cost effective or feasible to bring claims. So I think that's a, a, a good decision for businesses that have typically faced these sorts of these sorts of incidents. Um, there's one more, well, there's a couple of other cases, but I'll just refer to them, them briefly. They these these decisions, uh, B and D Council and Amiur and PwC, they relate to or they just determine in which courts these claims should be should be dealt with, or which court which claim which courts should deal with these claims. Sorry, and typically what we see is that. Claims for, for data breach, misuse of private information and the like, they are issued out of the media and communications list in the High Court. However, the courts have expressed a reluctance to allow low value, relatively straightforward claims to occupy the resources of the High Court. And what they've done is they've sent them back to the county court where they might well be dealt with on, a, on the small claims track. Now, the significance of that is that on the small claims court, or on the set small claims track, uh, costs are not generally recoverable from the other side. So it will not be cost effective to pursue individual low value data breach claims in many of those cases. So I think what we've seen in the last six months or so, or, or even a year, is the tide turning uh, in favor of businesses in, in, when it comes to these sorts of data protection issues. Lloyd and Google makes it more difficult to recover damages, or at least gives you a robust position from which to respond from BSG and Warren, for example, that, that limits the types of claims that are going to be actively pursued and the types of damages and, and uh, success fees and ATE premiums that can be recovered. And then other decisions which actually put these claims into the small claims track, which is really helpful for, for defendants. That's really interesting. And I think you're right in terms of the, the tide having turned recently. Do you think, Emma, obviously Lloyd and Google was a positive development as um, Tom's just said, for organisations facing data protection claims. But as we've heard, quite often other claims are thrown into the mix um, to try and take advantage of the specific aspects of those claims. So do you think that claimants are now going to be looking at these other routes to try and claim damages? And, and, and what routes do you think that they might try and um, take advantage of? Hi, Joanne. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Yes, I think possibly they are. And both Joanne and Tom have touched on two of the obvious routes that claimants could look at. One is misuse of private information and the other one is the breach of confidence claim. Um, and as you both said, a lot of the time you'll see that all three claims are, are all pleaded together. But what that doesn't automatically mean is that claimants can just throw in their lot with those sorts of claims. They've actually got to get over the hurdles and, and come up with the ingredients to get home. Otherwise, those courses of action will fail. So you're simply because something is personal information doesn't necessarily mean that it's got the necessary quality of confidence and nor does it mean that it be classed as private information either at law. For example, a trade secret will carry the necessary quality of confidence for a breach of confidence claim, but it wouldn't necessarily be private information that boots back to Human Rights Act and the person's right to private and family life. So there are certain thresholds that you need to get over. If we're looking at the tort of misuse of private information, the first threshold is, does the person claiming the privacy have a reasonable expectation of privacy? And the usual answer there will be yes, but then you have to look at it and do a balancing exercise. So in all the circumstances, 
does that individual's privacy right trump the right to freedom of expression enjoyed by the publisher of the information? So those are two quite broad brush approaches that you have to take, but the court takes those two approaches when it looks at a claim for misuse of private information. If we're looking at a breach of confidence claim, there are two types of breach of confidence claim. One is contractual, which is probably more straightforward, and the other is an equitable uh, breach of confidence claim if there's no contract in play. If it's an equitable claim in breach of confidence, then the information itself has to have the necessary quality of confidence to be able to even start looking at this sorts of claim. It has to be imparted in circumstances that objectively require confidence, and also there has to be a potential misuse or an actual misuse of that confidential information. I think in these circumstances that we're talking about, I think um, breach of confidence, even though it is regularly pleaded, it's tricky if it's an equitable breach of confidence, because something that the law is not massively clear on right now is whether failure to take reasonable care of people's confidential information actually gives rise to a breach of confidence. If there's a contractual element to um, the breach of confidence claim, then that's a different kettle of fish. Or if there's a special relationship between the party disclosing the information and the party receiving the information, again, that's a different kettle of fish. But if we're looking at straight equity, a negligent situation, which could be the case where there's a, there's a breach of personal data, you might struggle where breach of confidence is, is concerned. I think possibly misuse of private information could be the easier route for claimants to take. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to get home on that. You need to look at the attributes of the claimant. You need to look at the activity that the claimant was in, engaged in when that information has been publicised. The nature and purpose of the intrusion and the effect of it on the claimant as well, which is what both Tom and Joanne have, have both touched on. And also whether it's in the public domain, a breach of uh, misuse of private, sorry, misuse of private information claim will, do, will survive a degree of publicity. But if it's something genuinely has been put in the public domain, then you won't be able to get home on a, a misuse of private information claim. There does have to be an, an element of privacy still surviving about it. That's really interesting. And I guess the next question would be, particularly in relation to um, misuse of private information, there's recently been a very high profile decision by the Court of Appeal in the Duchess of Sussex and Associated Newspapers case. Do you think that has any impact on how individuals might launch misuse of private information cases against businesses? I actually don't think it does. I, I read that case with interest. I think everybody has done because it's it's quite salacious. So that sort of case is always an interesting one to read. But I think for our clients, it probably isn't going to have a, a huge impact. I think the biggest impact that that case will have will be for the media. And you can see that there'll be lots of newspaper people up and down the land holding their head in their hands when, when it comes to this judgment. It would have made things, I think, more, more tricky for the newspapers, but probably not for businesses. Just to recap, for those of you that haven't read the, the, um, the claim, and it, it's an interesting one. Megan, or the Duchess of Sussex, as we should probably call her, um, she has, well, she issued a claim for various things. One is misuse of private information, another was copyright infringement in relation to a letter that she wrote to her dad after her marriage to Harry. The letter was sent by recorded mail, so he had to sign for it, as I understand it. So it was very much sent with the intention that she didn't want it to become public, but part of the the, the ANL, the mail, basically, part of their defence was that she had expected that actually that that letter would end up being in the public domain. They cited things like the fact that she, she'd shown it to the communications person at the palace and her language was very careful 
so she had thought that it might end up in the public domain. But one of the things that the court heard, both at the lower court and also at the Court of Appeal, the court said that her contemplating that it might end up in the public domain didn't actually mean that she lost her expectation of privacy in relation to that letter. She was writing about something very personal to her. It wasn't about anything to do with her public life. The content of the letter dealt a lot with her feelings about the way her father had treated her. And just because she was a public figure and because the people at large knew that that letter existed, because the People um, magazine in America had actually raised reference to that letter in, the, in, an, in an article that they'd written, it didn't mean that she had lost her right to privacy in relation to that letter. So I think the media are going to have to be very, very careful about how they treat those sorts of sources. They're going to have to think about the extent to which they use that sort of source as well, because again, one of their defences was that they were using that letter to rebut something that was inaccurate, and that inaccuracy was apparently in relation to the People article and how the letter had been portrayed by the People article. The People magazine had apparently tried to portray this letter as a very loving letter written by a dutiful daughter, when in fact it was more a case of a letter berating a, a daughter, sorry, um, berating a father in relation to how she'd been treated. So the male tried to say that they were just trying to right a wrong there. But what they did was they used huge swathes of that letter to try and write the wrong, where really a, a paragraph would have done. So they, they went to town, they, they, they took a lot of, of that letter, which is why no doubt that she succeeded on the copyright infringement claim as well. So I think really in short, no, I don't think it was going to affect how businesses deal with misuse of private information claims, but it will have an impact for the media. And generally, people should just read it because it's quite a good read. Thanks, Emma. What sort of damages do you think you can recover if you get over the hurdles to bring a misuse of private information or a breach of confidence claim? Obviously, damages has been a bit of a theme today. Where, where would you go with damages on those sort of claims? I think damages is going to be the usual way of looking at damages. If you're talking about misuse of private information claim, you get damages for distress, um, as well as damages for loss of privacy arising out of the infringement. So you're looking at a general damages type of award. There's no vindication type of damages though, so you're not just going to get a cherry on the cake because you've lost your private information. You don't have to show that the damage is material for a misuse of private information claim to be awarded damages. And one thing that's fallen out of the Lloyd and Google judgment is, which I think ties back into what Tom's been talking about, where representative actions are concerned. If you're going to bring in a representative action for misuse of private information, I think that would be quite hard depending upon the number of people that were involved in that representative action because you do have to provide evidence of the facts that led to the loss to enable the judge to come to the conclusion on loss. So you don't necessarily have to come up with a blow-by-blow -blow documentary kind of invoice evidence to show what loss you've, occurred, you, you've incurred, but what you do have to do is provide the judge with something to base his decision on when it comes to assessing damage. And I see that probably as being witness evidence, really. So if you have a huge number of people in a representative action, it's probably going to be disproportionate and not really the purpose behind the representative action to produce the sort of evidence that the judge might need to be able to make his decision when assessing damage. So I think that might be quite tricky. And if you're coming on to breach of confidence, it depends if it's um, a breach of contract in terms of breach of confidence again you're looking at general damages and it's the usual principles that apply if you're looking at contractual sorry not contractual equitable um breach of confidence 
it's going to be a bit more tricky because you can either ask for an account of profits in relation to the loss that you've suffered. And the sort of claim that you might be looking at an account of profits type of loss would be something like if a trade secret has been taken and then used and someone's made money from that, resulting from that trade secret that's been taken that belongs to you. Or if a book was disclosed and again, someone's made money from that book. So then you'd be looking at loss of profits. But again, you have to actually look at the actual loss of profits that the person that's taken that information has has made as a result of, as the, of the disclosure. Or you can elect if it's an equitable breach of confidence claim for the damages, um, for the loss suffered by the innocent party. But again, you have to prove it. You can't just say, I have suffered loss and leave it at that. You do have to come up with some evidence of the loss that's been suffered. So again, I think where businesses are concerned, they can rest easy where that's concerned. The law hasn't changed where damages for misuse of private information or for breach of confidence is concerned. You still have to go through the usual hoops and the usual hurdles that you have to have to do to, to prove what loss has been suffered, even if it's not particularly material loss. That's really helpful, Emma. Thank you. So in summary, where does that leave us? Certainly from the damages point that I was looking at, there's been some welcome clarification by the courts in relation to claims for fairly low level breaches of data protection laws. And it's been helpful from the point of view of businesses and organisations in terms of the fact that there are no damages recoverable for a simple loss of control of personal data and that you do have to show the fact that there's a breach followed by damage, which can then be um, compensated. I think it's also useful that the courts have taken a pretty pragmatic view in relation to things like one-off low-level data breaches and the fact that they've said that they're expecting a reasonable amount of fortitude in relation to people expecting these things as a matter of daily life these days. So I think it's been pretty helpful for businesses from that point of view and I think it should give businesses confidence to push back on these sort of claims more and more. Um, obviously, as I said earlier, larger breaches will still need to be taken very seriously as they can involve substantial damages. Tom, can you summarise in relation to your sort of takeaways on the decision of the Supreme Court and the other cases in relation to how you might bring a claim? Um, what, what do you think people can take away from that? Yeah, I think I think for the for the time being, businesses can can rest a bit easier uh, that it's not quite so easy to bring these representative claims as it would have been had the decision in Lloyd and Google effectively gone the other way. Um, there is there is a, a a barrier and there is a difficulty bringing these claims for the time being. Well, bringing data protection claims on a representative basis, it's it's not straightforward for the time being. The other claims for for, for defendants are are useful as well. They provide you with ammunition in which to 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 respond quite heavily to, to individual claims that may still be pursued by, by, by claimants that have been the victim of a, of a data breach. So, so there is a, a good variety of case law at the moment that, that's relatively helpful to, to businesses on the receiving end of claims. Yeah, I completely agree in relation to that. So Emma, in relation to the sort of add-on claims, probably not fair to call them that, but in relation to misuse of private information and breach of confidence, are there any takeaways that you want to um, people to take note of from today? I think that people need to take comfort in the fact that you do actually have to demonstrate that the information that may be disclosed either has to be genuinely private or genuinely confidential, and they both have quite specific meanings in law, and that doesn't necessarily tie back to 
personal data. So whilst these two claims or heads of claims are quite often thrown into the mix, if you're looking at a representative action in relation to breach of confidence or misuse of private information, you still do have to do the work up front to demonstrate why that information is either private or why it's confidential. And in relation to the damages part of things, again, you can't just claim damages and expect to get some damages without some evidence of what that damage is. So again, for a very large representative action, that's quite a difficult thing to have to do. If it's a smaller, a smaller representative action with fewer people involved, maybe a little bit easier. But again, you can't just bandy these causes of action around without actually doing the work and demonstrating that they apply to the specific set of facts that you find yourself with. Thanks, folks. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please join us for our next episode. Thank you.